Well, good morning. Um, thank you all for having me this morning and my family. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rob Rash, and uh, I'm the guy that Sam called up and said, hey, you want to join me in this work? <laughs> and I said, let me pray about it. And as my wife and I prayed about it, and as you prayed about it, and other people prayed about it, the Lord had his hand upon this and was working. And so my wife is sitting in the third row here with five of our six kids. Um, my oldest is at our church back in Union playing guitar this morning. And so uh, didn't want to take him away from serving that church this morning. But he maybe will join us one of these Sundays as well. So it's a great honor for me to be here this morning and to look into this word. Um, before we do that, you can go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 1. Before we do that, let me just pray. Um, and ask the Lord to speak this morning. God, thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Lord, in awaking our dead hearts and saving us, bringing us into fellowship and relationship with you, and giving us a hope and a future. God, I pray that this word that we read this morning, um, Lord, that you would speak, that you would open our, our ears and our hearts to hear clearly your voice this morning. God, it's so easy to twist these words, whether intentionally or unintentionally, Lord. So I pray this morning that you would give us listening here ears to hear your word. And I pray, Lord, above all else, you'd be glorified this morning in all that is said and done. And I pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. So as we're looking at Philippians chapter 1, I want to give you a little bit of a backstory as we get into this book, um, and we're going to cover a few passages, and I will try to do my best to make it short. I tend to preach long. And as we look at this book, we want to look at what is happening um, and why Paul is writing this book. And the Apostle Paul wrote Philippians from a jail, and I agree with most scholars on this, although there's some disagreement, in a jail in Rome. As he was facing death, knew his time on earth was about to come to an end. And he writes this to this sweet, precious little church in Europe called Philippi. And so it's important for us to understand the context of who Paul was writing to so that we can understand really what he's saying in this book. And so before we go any further, um, we're going to look at Acts chapter 16. And I'm going to paraphrase if that's okay with you. You can follow this up if you'd like. But Paul was on his second missionary journey, and he was with uh, uh, Timothy and Silas, and he's heading up north through Antioch, and he's going into eastern Turkey. And the Lord keeps him from going somewhere. And he's trying to go to these other cities, and the Spirit of God is redirecting him. And then he has this vision, and he hears a man saying, come over to us, to Macedonia, and help us. And so Paul wakes up the next day, and he has this vision, and he... he gets on a ship, and he goes across into Europe. Now, this is important because if we remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, we remember him telling the disciples the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And so what we see is Paul literally going to the ends of the earth. As he was in Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria, and he is moving all over because the gospel has so transformed his heart Jesus has so transformed his heart, he can do nothing else but tell people about this. And so he heads over to Philippi. Philippi was this Roman city where most of the Roman centurions and retired military 
would go there, and they actually, it was like a little Rome, it was like a little Sicily, but it was a little Rome. It was built after Rome, and they were very proud of their Roman heritage. So when you read in Philippians, as you read through this book, you'll see that we are citizens of heaven. Paul's reminding them that our commitment is to Jesus first, rather than our citizenship. And that's a message that we could preach in another sermon for today, isn't it? Paul is in Philippi, or in Rome, writing to the Philippian church because he planted over 14 churches on his three missionary journeys. And there's some debate on whether or not he actually went to Spain and planted some there. And why is Paul in prison? Because of Jesus Christ. Because everywhere he went, in fact, after he planted the church in Philippi, if you go to Acts chapter 16, you'll see that he goes outside the city and he sees a woman named Lydia, a very affluent woman, praying near the river. And he goes and he shares the gospel. And the scriptures teach us that the Lord opened her heart to receive it. And so the Lord's starting to plant churches. Paul was the church planter. And Philippians could be his church planting support letter if you read it that way. And he starts this church with Lydia. And then... He's going into town. Do you remember the story? There's a slave girl, and she is possessed, and she is be able to tell you the future, in a sense, things about your life you didn't know, and so people would pay her or her owner to get money. And Paul got so annoyed with this that he told her, Spirit, please leave her. And so the spirit left. The owners of this girl were upset because now the way of their life, their livelihood was taken from them, and so they create a ruckus, and they go to the, the, the city hall, and they throw Paul, and they throw Silas into jail. Now, some of you might remember this story. They're in the jail, and they're, they're in stocks in the center of the jail, and it's about midnight, and Acts chapter 16 reminds us that they start singing hymns and praising Jesus and praying. Probably not what I would do. Probably not what you would do. Have you ever had those moments? where you should be turning your heart to praise, but because of the circumstance, we turn our hearts to anger, to discontentment, to frustration. As a church planter, um, I've had moments like that many times. I remember driving on the back roads and crying out to God, but not really a prayer of thanksgiving, but a prayer of frustration. And so it's amazing to see Paul in the midst of, of what seems like utter darkness, praising Jesus. And what happens? The Lord shakes the foundations of the jail. Not only do the doors open, but all the shackles fall out. And the Philippian jailer's there, and he sees this, and he can only think that now they're going to escape. And because they escape, it's my responsibility to protect them. And if their life is gone, it means my life is held to account for theirs. And so he's about ready to take his life, and... Paul yells out, don't do it, we're still here, please, don't take your life. And the Philippian jailer finds this really odd and strange, that why wouldn't you escape with your own life, but you would remain in prison and save my life. And so he's, he's wowed by what Paul had done, and so he goes and Paul shares the gospel with him. And so what the Philippian jailer does is he takes him out of jail, and he takes him to his home, and he washes him, and he feeds him, and Paul shares the gospel. And you know what happens? The Lord was at work because it says he and his whole household believed and they were saved. Then the Roman, uh, the people of Philippi, they come and they take Paul and they want, to, they want him to, is to, to leave town. They've had enough of this. And Paul, being a Roman citizen, said this isn't right. 
we were condemned by you, we were beaten by you, and we were thrown in jail without a trial. This is kind of like throwing someone in jail in our society without a fair trial before our judicial system. And so Paul is making a point. No, you come yourselves and you let us go. And so they come and they apologize and they have their tail, so to speak, between their legs. And they let them go and they go to the next town. And Paul continues from town to town to town. But before he left, he says he went and it adds this little, this little nugget that if you're not if you're not reading it very closely, you might overlook it. But as he's leaving town, it says, So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. See, God was starting a work there. It wasn't just Lydia and the Philippians uh, jailer's household, but there were brothers that God had saved. And so Paul was this amazing church planner, and he went from town to town. Sometimes they had to lower him out in a basket. Sometimes they had to sneak him out. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was snake bitten. He had a life that you and I would not desire to live. But because of the gospel, because of the church sending him out, he felt so empowered by the Spirit to see where God was working and planting churches. Now, I say this because God is working here, is he not? God is working in Troy. God is working in Lincoln County. And as a church planner, what we do is we study demographics and, and who's coming into town, who's leaving town, where are people going, who, how many people go to church. And did you know that Troy is one of the largest and fastest growing cities, the fastest growing city in Missouri? 26.5% growth in the last 10 years. And it's only going to continue. And so as we, as you all send us out, as you all send me out and get to know me and my family, it's an honor to be in the same shoes that the Philippian church was as they sent Paul out to continue to preach the gospel and plant churches. And we believe that if we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, that God, as he awakens hearts, will save these people. And one of my prayers is that the Lord would light a revival in Lincoln County. And that it wouldn't be based on a personality or a, a person or a church, but it would be based on the good news that you and I carry with us, this gospel. And so my first point in getting us to this text is that I entitled this sermon, The Joy of the Gospel, but there's more to it. But we have to start with what is the joy of the gospel? I want you to take a moment to think about that day when Christ came into your heart. When Christ woke you up from your slumber, from your rebellion, from your sinfulness, and he said, I've got something better. Can you remember that moment? Because what we see in the, this letter to the Philippians, Paul is now in a Roman jail after planting all these churches, making multiple trips, writing them letters, encouraging them, correcting them, and he's in a jail, and he's tied to the imperial guard. He's in Caesar's household. And you know what Paul still does in that moment? He shares the gospel so that they all have heard. And they know exactly why he's being persecuted, which he reminds us in this first text. But in this book, do you know what this book is also called? It's called the Book of Joy. Over 12 times, Paul mentions the word joy or rejoice. And this isn't even talking about the word gladness, which you could add to the list. You see, Paul was filled with the joy of Christ, because of what a Christ had done in him. And I think it's important for us to never forget. I was 12 years old when I gave my life to Christ. 
My parents, by God's grace, had brought me to church most of my life. I'd gone to summer camp. I had played fun games. I'd gone to Sunday school. God was always a part of my life, but it wasn't until August 8, 1988, out at High Hill Christian Camp, that something about that story, something about who Jesus actually was, I knew he was God's son, and I knew that I had sinned against him, and I knew that there was no way for me to enter into the kingdom unless I gave my life to Christ. And so that moment at that camp, I decided, this is it. I'm going all in. But that wasn't just the start, right? Because I was 12, and I do remember quite a few things. But I need to remember often because I have this tendency to revert back to my own sinful nature. And so I want to ask you to take a moment. Maybe it was last week. Maybe it was last year. Maybe it was when you were 12. But we have this thing called the joy of the gospel. And I want to read to you. I promise we're going to get to Philippians. But it's important for us to lay this base because there's this verse that Sam already prayed about this good work. And we have to get to the joy of the gospel first so that we can see the implications of the gospel for our lives. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes to the Ephesian church and he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And if we stop there and the scripture stopped there, you and I would be hopeless. You and I would face something that we could never bear and carry on our own. There's no works enough that we could carry to get outside of the wrath of God. Yet when I read those scriptures, I am reminded that I was dead. Not just in my sins, not just in not being like Christ, like God, but, but I am willingly trespassing him. I am willingly going against him. I am rebelling against the holy and righteous God. And we and you and I were following the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air that is at work in the sons of disobedience. You and I were sons and daughters of disobedience and we lived there and we loved it. And we were carrying out the passions of our flesh, of our mind and our body, and we stood opposed to God. And if that's where Paul left us, if that's where God left us, we would be in a world of hurt. But then verse 4 comes in, and this is where we find the joy of the gospel that Paul is mentioning here as we get to this text in just a minute. He says, but God. I love that little preposition, but God. He steps in to save the day. And here's the thing. Oftentimes we think this was like plan B. Right? Like, like God created the world, and he had Adam and Eve, and it was perfect. And we're like, why couldn't you just be in relationship with God and follow him? Why couldn't you do that and save us all this pain and brokenness? Because you and I are a direct result of the sin of Adam and Eve. And you and I carry brokenness, even in Christ, with us everywhere we go. Now, the Lord is mending, and he's kind at doing that. But I know when I look at my wife that I'm not as much like Christ to her as I need to be. In fact, more often than that, I'm more like Rob than I am like Jesus. And when I look at my 
children. And I see them, and I see how sin and brokenness has affected my heart. It, it leads me back to him like, Lord, fix me, help me, save me, continue to work in me. And so if we were left in that place, we would be hopeless. And God didn't create this world that way. But he's creating a new world that you and I are a part of. That he's going to restore all things back where sin won't infiltrate and brokenness won't have a grip on us and death will be done with. But it was always his plan to send Jesus, even before the, the creation of the world, if you read Ephesians 1. This was always his plan. It wasn't by accident. Christ, the eternal son, knowing that he would always submit to the Father, even to the point of death and death on a cross, to carry the wrath that you and I could never carry, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with us, with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is the joy of the gospel, that God, simply out of his goodness and his divine sovereignty and foreknowledge, he loved you. Before the foundation of the world, before you were even created, he knew you, he loved you, he desired for you to come into his kingdom, and he's called you, and you're sitting in the presence of him right there this morning. Which means the gospel gives you hope, and it gives you purpose. What do I love about Acts 29? There's many things. Gospel centrality is one of the big things. Why? Because if gospel was just the ABCs of the kingdom coming to the door, sitting in a pew every week, and try to be good, I know when I get home tonight, I will have failed at being good. And it leaves a burden on me that I cannot carry, that I was not intended to carry. But the gospel is not just for those who preach in pulpits. The gospel is for those who sit in pews. For those when you walk out of here and you go and you eat lunch somewhere, you carry the aroma of Christ with you. It means that job that you have, that maybe you like and maybe you don't like, there is a purpose because God has uniquely set you in that place for this time to preach and to proclaim and to be salt and to be light to those around you. Those of you who are at home changing diapers and doing dishes and laundry, there is glory in that because God is using you for those little people that are looking to you. There is purpose with the gospel. It gives us meaning in everything we do. And so we have this great joy, which is what Paul had, which is why he was compelled to go out and to see where God was at work and to tell them this good news of Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so it brings us to Philippians. <laughs> and as a church-planting church, this is important because we're going to look what the joy of the gospel produces in us. The joy of the gospel produces three things from this text. The joy of the gospel produces prayer, partnership, and praise. So let's read this text, and I'll do my best to explain what's happening here in those three points for us to marinate in our hearts and souls this morning. Philippians 1, verse 3. I thank 
my God. This is Paul writing from prison to this little beautiful church in Philippi. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As we pursue the joy of the gospel, we see it play out with Paul and we see it play out with us this morning that it produces prayer. The joy of the gospel produces prayer. And if we take a moment to look at Philippians 1.6, what we see is we see right in the middle of this text, Paul giving us the joy of the gospel. Why do we pray for you? Why do we partner with you and why do we praise God? He says, because I am sure of this, that he being God in Christ, who began a good work, that he has saved you, not just to save you into the kingdom, but save you for the kingdom that he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the joy that Paul reminds them of, and it leads out in prayer. If we look at the first, at verse 3 and 4, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why does Paul pray for this church? Because he has spent time in ministry with them. He has seen God transform their lives. He has seen God plant a church that's taking the gospel to one of the most hostile areas in Europe. And he's seen it bear fruit. And so he loves them. Why? Because they have loved him. There is this word called partnership in verse 5. Because of your partnership, this is the Greek word called koinonia. You may have heard this word. You may have been a part of college ministries that use this word as their ministry name. This word is a unique word, and it means that, if I can sum it up, that we strive together for the gospel. We strive together for the advancement of the gospel. That you do that as First Baptist Ellsbury. We will do that as Redeemer Church in Troy. We will do that as we both are churches that, by God's will, will plant more churches. That we strive together to take this, this message of light, this good news of Jesus Christ, into the darkest corners of our streets and our neighborhoods and our counties. And we do this by praying for one another. Paul remembers the Philippians in his prayer because they were dear to him, that he loved them. He had great affections for them, and he remembered them. When we remember the gospel, we should remember the joy we have and the fellowship within the church. Like, the church is a strange thing, isn't it? On our way up this morning, I saw a guy at 7 o'clock washing his pretty nice Mustang. And I thought, isn't that something? We'll get up early on a Sunday morning and we'll wash our car to make it look good. When we all know it's going to rain today and tomorrow and the next day. 
And I see people cutting their grass and doing maintenance on their house. And, and there's probably guys out there chasing a little white ball down, a, down through the woods. And none of those are bad things. But you and I have decided to get up early to come to this place to sing songs to the eternal invisible God, to hear text read out of an ancient book. Why? Because the spirit is at work. There's something special about being a part of the kingdom of God, and we should never forget this. It unites us. There's this deep fellowship that you and I have in the spirit, that we are united with Christ. We are heirs with him, and that one day we will receive all of that with Christ. And so why should we pray? Why do we remember one another? We should pray because Jesus expects us to. Jesus expects you and I to be a people of prayer. And so this is a part of the joy that the, that the gospel produces in us, that we pray for one another, that we don't just pray for our spouse or our kids, but we pray for each person in this church, that we open up our lives enough to hear what's happening in each other's lives so that we can write it down and remember it in prayer. Because there's power in prayer, and Jesus expects us to pray. Matthew 6, 5, Jesus says, and when you pray. Matthew 6, 6, but when you pray. Matthew 6, 7, and when you pray. Matthew 6, 9, this then is how you should pray. I think prayer was important to Jesus. And I think it's important for you and I as gospel witnesses. God's word also makes it clear. Colossians 4, 2 says, devote yourselves to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray continually. There was a monk named Brother Lawrence, and you can read about him. And he saw this scripture, and he wanted so much to, to decide, how, Lord, can I can pray continually? This is, the, this is the, a perpetual prayer. And I don't know um, if Sam's like this, or when some of you preach, Saturday nights are not the greatest nights for me because I don't sleep well, because I'm thinking about the text. I'm thinking about the words that God has written and making sure that, Lord, please pray. Please say what needs to be said. When the sirens go by and the ambulance, do you stop and, and pray? When you see someone in need, do you not just give them what they need, but do you pray with them? A friend of mine, his name's Mike, and he's a little bit north of here. And one of the things I love about Mike, because I need to be a better prayer. And Mike is a prayer. And I've seen Mike stop in the middle of Walmart and pray with people he does not know. The joy of the gospel produces prayer, and so it's something that you and I need to work with and to consider greatly as we follow the Lord that we would be people of prayer. And I can tell you this, if Redeemer Church is going to be a church that grows and God blesses and reaches that part of this county, it's only going to be by people praying. And as a church planner who has struggled in the past, I can see the evidence of your prayers. I've heard stories of your prayers. And these are stories that I tell people when I'm out trying to tell them about the church. Because prayer absolutely moves in the kingdom of God. And prayer is a powerful thing. Martin Luther said, It is the business of tailors to make clothes and cobblers to mend shoes. So it is the business of Christians to pray. The gospel the joy of the gospel produces, produces prayer. The second thing that the joy of the gospel produces is partnerships. This is the striving together to advance the kingdom of God that you and I are a part of. Partnerships are mentioned all throughout the Bible. 
And I'll just mention a few. It starts with the triune God. Before the foundations of the world, they created the world. Let us make man in our image, Genesis 126 says. And so there's this unique fellowship between God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit that I cannot fully communicate to you and you will never fully understand. But there is this intimate and deep fellowship. And they create, they, God created the world out of love, out of his goodness. We also see partnerships in the nation of Israel. How they work together, how they set themselves aside for the kingdom to, to do the will and the work of God, to set themselves apart, to bring glory to God, to the nations around them. That's why they were different. We see David and Jonathan, a unique partnership, one where one was the heir of the kingdom, yet he laid down his right because he saw his friend was the one that was anointed. David and his mighty men. We were listening to uh, Adventures in Odyssey on the way up about King David. I get to tell my boys, do you know about the mighty men? These were men that were warriors, so much so that, that one of them killed thousands and his hand froze to the sword because the spirit was at work within him. I said, David had a great relate. These were, his, these were his boys. These were the guys he ran with. David could not have done it on his own. He needed partnerships. And then Jesus, when he sends out the 72, when he's discipling them and he has the 72 and he sends them out, and he says, don't take food, don't take an extra cloak, go into each town and whoever accepts you, you, put, you bless them, you, you stay with them and, and go and heal people. Go and tell them about the kingdom of God. But he didn't send them out one by one, did he? He sent them out two by two. We were, we were created to be in community with one another. We were created to be gospel witnesses in partnership together. And so as a church planner, this is great news for us to have some of you step out of this church and trust yourselves, in a sense, to, to my preaching. But this is about us and this together. Paul didn't go alone on his missionary journeys. He went with Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and good old Luke. Paul found joy because the gospel partnerships that he had with the church at Philippi, they were together in the gospel. They were unified in this message because we can find many things to be to complain about and to argue about. We have many opinions about many things, but one thing we can unify in is that God saves people through the proclamation of his son Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. They were together in the gospel and they supported him financially. And they supported him uh, spiritually. And so Paul loved this church. We too as Christians are called to live as a community marked by ongoing thankfulness and confidence in God's continued work among us. God is at work. God is at work in your life. And sometimes we don't sense that. Sometimes we don't feel that. And on a side note, sometimes he has to prune you. And if you're a gardener, which I am not, I'm good at killing things, not growing things. When you prune something, you have to cut parts off that aren't growing. And that's painful. And there are seasons where we don't feel this fruit in our lives, but God is still at work in you. He's still going to finish the work in which he started with you. He is faithful to do that. And so the joy of the gospel produces partnerships of which I'm thankful for. And the last point is this. The joy of the gospel produces praise. 
We read the last three verses of this section. After Paul's explaining this to them and their partnership and how he holds them dear and they're partakers of grace with him in his imprisonment and in his defense and confirmation of the gospel that we share in that. He says in, in verse 9, he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. To the glory and praise of God. The gospel produces these moments of not just emotive feelings, but sometimes they do. But sometimes we gather here and weekly we gather here to remind ourselves that God is worthy to be praised. Amen. That is when we're praising him, not only when we're on the highest of mountains, when things are going our way, but when we're in the depths and we're not feeling his presence and we're feeling the world cave in on us. That's when we cry out like David did in Psalm 23. And we praise his name and we give him glory because he is still at work. He is still the king of kings and the Lord of lords and the Prince of Peace, and we live in a world that seems to be going to the worst place we can imagine. It seems like when Jesus said, it is finished, and he sat down at the right hand of God, a picture of his completion, that it seems like the world is not complete. It seems that war and hatred and racism and politics can drive a wedge into the kingdom of God. And so we give God glory knowing that he does reign and rule and that all things that happen in your life are not on accident and that he wills and decrees all things for his glory. That God is glorified in you when you give him the glory in your life. And so the gospel produces this because that's why it's important for us to remember what God has done for us. I forget it all the time. I can even forget it while I'm studying this book, wanting to know what it really says. Wanting to know what I can tell others when I haven't even told myself. It can get sideways real quick, and so we have to remind ourselves that, that Jesus, when he has saved us, he's worthy to be praised. And of course we know, and I'm going to wrap it up here in just a minute, Paul writes in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. Not, not just Christians, not just those who have believed in him through the ages, but all through all eternity, through all creation, one day. Can you imagine that? Everyone will give God glory one day. Everyone will proclaim that Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And so as I wrap this up, I want to thank you for being a part of this church. I want to thank you for committing your life to Christ, to bringing your family, to sitting under the preaching of the elders at this church. I want to thank you as someone who's on our way up, back up to Troy, to an old building that sat empty for four years on a gravel road that was long forgotten. God's not done. 
And I, my prayer for Redeemer Church is that as God starts to redeem that place and redeem that people and redeem that community, that not only will our, our partnership in the joy of the gospel grow, but we'll see the kingdom expand. That we'll share one another's burdens. That God will be glorified in our lives and in our churches and in our county. And that we'll be a people of prayer and part of